the Visible Hand, Special Job Market Edition. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Ari Bronsoler, a PhD student and job market candidate at MID. We're going to talk about his paper, Texting to Save Lives, Evidence from Cardiovascular Treatment Reform in Mexico. Ari, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me. So Ari, this paper studies the effect of a program implemented in Mexican hospitals to improve the way that heart attacks patients are treated. And a core component of this program is the fact that the transfer of patients between hospitals is made as uh, faster and more efficient. So one of the things that I really like about this paper is the fact that it takes the production technology very seriously in that there is, throughout the paper, what seems to be like a deep understanding of how hospitals treat heart attacks. I was wondering whether you could start by explaining what a heart attack is from a medical perspective and how they were treated in Mexican hospitals prior to the implementation of this program. Definitely. So what happens when a person gets a heart attack is that one of the arteries is blocked and blood flow to the heart muscle stops. When flow to the heart stops, the muscle will start to die. So basically you, the heart of that person will begin dying. Now, once you have that, you need to go to a hospital to get care. And there are two kinds of hospitals when talking about how to treat a heart attack. On the one hand, you can go to a doctor's called a perfusion center that will be able to perform a percutaneous coronary intervention which is basically that they'll insert a small tube with a balloon all the way to where the blockage is happening, inflate the balloon to release the blockage, and then allow it insert a small stent that will allow you to continue with your life and be perfectly fine. These are very advanced centers that require advanced technology and also specialized physicians. On the other hand, you could also go to a general hospital that's not going to be able to perform this advanced procedure, but will be capable of doing something that it's called fibrinolytic therapy. Now, this therapy will, will really thin your blood to try and A, dissolve the clot, and B, if even the clot doesn't dissolve completely, it'll allow some blood to go through, buying you some extra time so that you can actually make it to the PCI room. Now, I'm analyzing transfers and the role that communication across hospitals play because in the context of heart attacks, every minute really counts. So there's some medical literature that documents that every 10 additional minutes that passes for the most complicated patients raises their chance of dying by 3.5%. So if you take half an hour longer, then you get a 35% point increase in the likelihood of that person dying. Now, it is not efficient for a healthcare network to build every center to be PCI capable, because if we think of a small and rural area that has a thousand people, they're very unlikely to get a heart attack and spending a huge amount of money to get this PCI center ready and having a cardiology specialist based there just doesn't make sense. Therefore, transfers are going to be super important in this context. Now, what used to happen in particularly in Mexico, which by the way, has four times the mortality rate after a heart attack than the average OECD member is that a physician would decide that a transfer was needed and would have to call from a general hospital to a reperfusion center. Then at the reperfusion center, a secretary would pick up the phone, try and find a physician that can authorize such a transfer, which would often take some time. Now, after they found this physician, both of them would discuss the case and agree that a transfer was necessary. Now, after all of this has happened, the general hospital physician will arrange the patient for transfer, make sure that an ambulance is available and send him on his way. However, the physician at the reperfusion center would just go back to doing whatever they were doing before, 
and nobody was made aware that a patient with a heart attack was incoming. Therefore, when the patient would make it to the emergency department, nobody was aware what was going on. This person would have to be triaged again. Then for the first time, the treating physician would read his file, understand what is going on, and then make a treatment decision. Moreover, if you want to do a PCI, it was also likely that the PCI room might be taken for something else, and this patient had to wait even longer in order to get treated. So what they came up to do, which I think it's really interesting, smart, super cheap and efficient, is why don't we create WhatsApp groups literally on the common app between physicians at the general hospitals and the reperfusion centers. And they use WhatsApp, but of course, you can think of any common chat group that you have. Or even if you're worried about privacy, you can create an app on your own that's completely safe and HIPAA compliant, for example. So what they do is that the general physician now takes a picture of the ECG scan, which is the most important piece of information, along with basic demographics, sends it to a physician in the reperfusion center. That person reads what they're seeing, immediately answers because there's a person in charge of monitoring these groups, authorizes a transfer. And instead of going back to whatever they were doing before, that person forwards information to the emergency department. And in turn, the emergency department is getting ready to receive this incoming heart attack patient and make sure that a PCI room is available so that as soon as the patient gets there, they get into treatment immediately. You have given out of color. Let me see whether you can summarize these things in terms of the elements that economists or even organizational economics uh, scholars use. So you were saying that there are two types of treatment. They have complicated names. So if it is okay with you, let's call them from now on a balloon and a needle, where a balloon is harder to implement than a needle. Any general hospital can put a needle, but only specialized hospitals can put a balloon. And as you said, it is not efficient for every hospital to invest in these capabilities because only some of the patients need them. Coordination between hospitals is critical here so that the patients that go to a general hospital but actually need a balloon are transferred quickly. The transfer was not happening quickly enough. And as a result of this, some of the patients that were in need of a balloon, they were either not transferred or they arrived too late and so on and so forth. That implied that they died. You said that in Mexico, the survival rate is much higher than in OECD countries. But one of the things that you did not say, but it is also important here, is that the survival rate for patients that go directly to a specialized hospital is much higher than for those who go to a general hospital. Can you tell us like, what the numbers are with respect to this? Yes, you're absolutely right. I think that if you take a look, so the idea of building these networks is that you want to have a reperfusion center that oversees several general hospitals and by efficient transfers, you can really limit the difference in survival rate that happens among these two centers. So for example, in London, there's an estimate that says that if you make it to a general hospital, you're only 2% more likely to die versus if you make it to a reperfusion center, which is capable to perform the balloon. However, within Mexico City, in IMSS hospitals, which is the largest public healthcare provider, what you see is that there's a 32 percentage point difference between making it to a general hospital versus a reperfusion center. And this is even by, with hospitals that are in the same city. So one of the reasons why this is happening is that the system is too fragmented. Transfers are so inefficient that whenever you make it to a general hospital and actually require a balloon, you won't make it in time. Another piece of evidence of this is that on average, transfers from one to the other take 12 hours. And that's a really, really long time. So in some sense, the way that you have described like the system, I, I don't know if you are aware of this paper, but there is like in organizational economics, a, I guess by now classics theory paper by Garicano that uh, looks at uh, professional services firms or models professional services firms in which the workers there receive like a flow of problems. 
and he finds that it is optimal for some workers to specialize in acquiring a lot of knowledge so that they can solve very complicated problems. And then there are other workers who do not specialize so much. They take any problem that arises and they solve it if they can. If they cannot, they send it upwards to, say, the partner or the more senior worker. In some sense, what you're describing is precisely this system yes. in which there are some hospitals that can solve any problem, the specialized ones, and other hospitals that can solve only easy problems. But of course, in the model of Garicano, the communication cost that is paid when the junior member sends a problem that cannot be solved by, by them to the senior member, obviously the, it's playing a critical role here. And what you're saying is that communication cost was very high, such that the problems or the patients that were very difficult were not being sent on time. As a result of this inefficiency of having to call the secretary and wait for the transfer and so on that, that you are describing. That's exactly right. So actually in that model of Garicano, which I really like a lot. What is shown there is that the lower the communication cost is, the more you want to transfer patients. You want to transfer somebody to your supervisor because it's easier to coordinate with them. And in some sense, I think that the evidence that I, that I am showing on this paper is exactly consistent with this. So by reducing the cost of communication and transfer from one point to the other, what we're going to see is that there's a significant increase in transfers. Transfers actually almost double. And then because of this increase in transfers, you're going to receive a higher output because you're able to send more people to a supervisor who's more trained or more capable to treat these more The likelihood that the problem is solved will be, will be higher. Exactly. You have described already one of the elements of this program that was implemented uh, in Mexico in order to alleviate these inefficiencies that were taking place in the transfer of patients from general hospitals to specialized hospitals. You said they set up some uh, WhatsApp groups. Can you uh, go again through what these WhatsApp groups entail? And can you also describe the other element that this program had? Uh, the program is called Código Infarto, but one thing that is really important here is that the element had, if you want, two legs. One, a decrease in communication costs, but another one was an increase in general capabilities. Can you describe yes. what they are? Sure. So first, something that I think it's really nice is that Código Infarto translates to code heart attack in English. So it's a program designed all around getting treatment promptly to heart attack. So the WhatsApp component that I was describing is extremely simple. It relies on physicians using an app that they already have. Just to give you a sense of the numbers, 70% of the population over 15 in Mexico use WhatsApp to communicate with one another. And so what happens is a physician only needs to take a picture of the ECG scan that can be done easily on WhatsApp. And the other physician just needs to read it and in turn send information over to the emergency department. And that's all that all the way in which they're alleviating all these barriers to coordination that were from the secretary, having to find somebody, so on and so forth. Now, the second component of the program that you correctly mentioned is, well, if we think about these networks with the supervisor and the less trained uh, individuals below, Another way in which you can increase output is to increase the capabilities of the people at the bottom, right? So in some sense, the other leg of the program is saying that this, and what they're going to try and do is they're going to try and improve the capabilities of each of these general hospitals by improving the organization that they have to treat heart attack patients, by making sure that there's a room reserved and fully equipped so that they can apply furinolytic therapy early, which is also really important. Furinolytic therapy is the needle that we were discussing before. 
And moreover, they're going to make sure that every hospital member, every hospital staff is aware that whenever there's a heart attack patient, that patient is a priority and they should make sure that that patient comes in and gets treated right away. So to give you a little bit more overview of what's going on, before, when a patient was diagnosed with a heart attack, they had to find a room that had a fully equipped car that entails many, many tools in order to apply the fibrinolytic therapy. And the thing is that when you apply this therapy, you need to be able to, to closely monitor the heart and be ready to revive the patient in case something goes wrong. And that entails having a lot of tools. So what happened before is that they took a long time in order to find all of these tools, make sure that the room was ready, get the patient there, and then provide the service. So what they do now is that they have a room that is fully equipped with this red car, and that red car cannot be moved. And then when a, whenever a patient is diagnosed with a heart attack and treatment with the needle is deemed proper at that hospital, they have a, run, a room ready that's waiting for that patient to come in, and they treat them. Okay, So that will probably reduce the time that they get to this easier treatment and will probably increase survival by increasing the capabilities that they have at the general hospital. So the paper is called Texting to Save Lives, at least that's the, you know, the first part of the title. And a hint from there that I detect is that you are more interested in the first part of the program than the second part, because in some sense, we know or at least suspect that improving the capabilities of a hospital in treating patients is going to improve the survival of patients. So that second part that you described, that second element of the program is not so groundbreaking. But you argue in the paper, at the introduction of the paper, that the improvement in communication between units of the same organization has actually not been shown to improve productivity, at least in a health sector setting. And I was surprised to read that. Can you describe what evidence has shown that before? Like, why is it that investing in technology to communicate across units of the same organization has not been shown to improve productivity? Let me give you a little bit of background. So I, I think the my main interest is in texting because it's such a simple and cheap communication and it has such a big benefit that I think it's a first order thing for people to highlight to people. And the context behind this is that over the past few years, there's a, there has been a huge investment in health information and communication technologies based on the promise that by adopting electronic health records and health information exchange capabilities, hospitals and doctors in general will be able to increase their productivity substantially and improve health outcomes that way, while at the same time saving a lot of money. Now, because of this, to give you an example, uh, the High Tech Act spent $30 billion in the United States to try and incentivize hospitals to acquire electronic health records. Now, this raised electronic health record adoption within hospitals from 15% in 2008 all the way to 85% in 2015. And this number has continued to climb and it's almost at 100%. Now, after all of this happened, the literature, at least so far, has not been able to find these amazing returns that we were expecting. And one of the reasons why is because systems do not communicate well with one another. And since systems do not communicate well with one another, then the reason why they were created to increase efficiency across hospitals, or one of the reasons why they were created, has not managed to come to fruition. Moreover, the fact that the systems that have been used are so complicated implies that physicians simply cannot know how to use them. They are not trained in using these fancy, complicated softwares, and therefore they don't become that much more productive when they are installed. 
So the question I'm raising here as well, could widely available technology already help? So every physician, as many of us do, as I think every one of us does now, relies on their cell phone to communicate with their loved ones, their friends, make plans, so on and so forth. And they're used to doing this. So in particular, for acute conditions that require timely coordination, how about if we just try and develop tools that look very similar to what they know and use every day? And what I'm showing is that by doing that, you really increase communication and coordination, and then you get this huge effect. Let me put a couple of caveats, if you don't mind, on what you have said. The first one is that from the perspective of my daughters, WhatsApp is just part of the, of the landscape. You know, it's the simplest, easiest possible technology that you could imagine. From the perspective of my parents, let alone my grandparents, this is absolutely groundbreaking. You know, like the fact that a technology is widely used and, you know, seems completely unsurprising today doesn't mean that it's not a groundbreaking technology from a historical perspective. And therefore, it's not so surprising that the arrival of a groundbreaking technology potentially has a groundbreaking results. The other thought that comes with respect to what you said is that Perhaps the reason that the literature has not found these effects is that the previous implementation of information and communication technologies has been more holistic than the one that you study uh, here. That is, if you have electronic health records and they are implemented across uh, many hospitals and they have many different aspects, you know, perhaps the benefits are going to be more diffuse and it is going to be harder to link them to outcomes, to measure the outcomes in a way that you are able to do here, just because this is a, a narrowly used technology. That is, these are WhatsApp groups that are uniquely devoted to the transfer of information for heart attacks, and that you link with almost the only type of medical procedure for whom you can observe outcomes in a timely way. That is, heart attacks are wonderful from an econometrician perspective in that the dependent variable has variation. People die or don't die and within 30 days or not, you know, from obviously terrible for patients, great for econometricians. So another way to say this is that the absence of evidence in the previous literature, you know, perhaps is just the, the result of the wrong empirical strategy in, in looking at settings in which it is harder to find these effects rather than the fact that the effects don't exist. So let me start with the WhatsApp comment. I 100% agree that as soon as a new technology comes in and it changes the way we operate, one would expect and hope for that to have huge outcomes and increases in productivity. And in some sense, when you think about information and communication technologies and how they interact and allow us to share vast amounts of information that can be analyzed immediately and at that precise moment shared with one another, one would think, well, healthcare delivery is perfect for this because it relies on several information sources and it is a setting where communication is really important. So the fact that after spending some of these huge amounts of money, we haven't seen them, it's quite frankly surprising to me. So the second thing that you were mentioning is that heart attacks are a great tool for us econometrists because we actually have some variation in whether people die or not. And I think that's a fair comment for you to say. And of course, a more holistic approach to health information technology is sort of, well, now we have a ton of data that we're recording and now we're able to analyze it afterwards and maybe incorporate all of this data into some clinical decision support mechanisms that will throw alert physicians and so on and so forth. 
And that's absolutely true. And I'm not saying that what has been done has no value. I'm just highlighting that one of the main ideas behind this adoption was that coordination across hospitals would be so much better. And I think because of this variation that you mentioned, where people actually die from heart attacks, Focusing on them is the most important thing we want to focus on because in reality, we want to save lives. And let me add to that one more thing. So while I agree with you completely that a more holistic approach has several advantages, like recording information, doing predictions, so on and so forth, for developing countries, at least so far, acquiring one of these fancy systems has been impossible because they simply cannot afford them. I mean, I cannot think of a developing country willing to spend $30 billion in order to get an electronic health record. However, if you use what doctors already have on their phones, you can get huge returns on mortality. So the implied effects that I'm seeing is that by only including WhatsApp through these physicians, you would be able to save 800 lives a year. And that's basically costless. So you're right, maybe a developing country cannot do this holistic approach and some of the benefits will not be there. But the communication benefits can be really there simply without spending money, in particular for this country. And and the last thing that I want to mention is even for the United States, I think, or for the other developed countries, I think that one thing is not against the other. So you might have a holistic electronic health record, super advanced system that's not as easy to use, but you may also create different chat groups that are super easy to use for these acute conditions that require transfers right away. And one example for this is that Mount Sinai in the United States just launched an app that relies on exactly the same mechanisms that I'm studying. It has a HIPAA compliant texting group, of course but they rely on the same exact mechanisms where a doctor can immediately send a picture. The other doctor will see it, authorize the transfer and start getting ready to treat the patient. You have two elements that are important in your study and I would like to take them sequentially. So first of all, you have the estimation of whether the program had an effect on survival of heart attack patients. And then you have a second part in which you try to disentangle the potential uh, separate effects of the uh, first part of the program, which was the uh, improvement in communication, with the second part of the program, which was the general improvement in capabilities for the general hospitals. So let's take them sequentially. Can you describe how the program was implemented in terms of, it, of its timing and what is the empirical strategy that you use to estimate the overall effect of the program? So first off, the program, the idea behind the program was to include one of these really complicated electronic health record mechanisms to try and get hospitals to talk. And the cardiology head at the Reperfusion Center Network in Mexico City, Southern Park, was tasked to finding a way in which this could be done. So one thing that I think I haven't mentioned is that IMSS, which is the largest public health care system in Mexico, relies on 23 networks where one Reperfusion centers oversees many general hospitals on average eight. And then this reperfusion center is in charge of that network. And there are 23 regional networks across the country. So the head of cardiology at the reperfusion center in Mexico City's Southern Network was in charge of trying to design this intervention. And when she was talking about the investment necessary with the director at the time of this organization, they came up with the idea of, well, why don't we use WhatsApp, which they already have, instead of investing millions of dollars in trying to create a new system that would probably not be used. So that's how Código Infarto was born in that sense. And the capabilities component, I think, was clear. We need to be able to treat patients and be ready for them without having to look for good. Uh, so they started off as a pilot in the Mexico City Southern Network, and then they expanded to the Mexico City's Northern part. Since Mexico City is so big, they have two full networks. And after that, they expanded in three years to the whole country. So the way in which I approach my, my empirical strategies, first, I analyze a clean difference in difference between Mexico City South and Mexico City Northern networks. 
And I find that there's really large effects in terms of the survival for people that get first to a general hospital when compared to, when compared to what was happening before. I also find that there's a huge increase in transfers. And lastly, which is really important, I find that there's no negative externality for, pe for people that are arriving to reperfusion centers first. Yeah, just to be clear, this is, you have a data set of patients. Is that yes. correct? And you include only patients that are either in the Southern or in the Northern network. Yes. And then you have a hospital fixed yes. effects for the general hospitals to which they first go. And then month fixed effects. And then, as you said, a difference in difference with the interaction between the hospital fixed effects and the post period after the Southern Network implemented the program or not. That's the that interaction is the, the interaction from the different diff. And the result that you're describing are the results depending on the different variables that you put on the left hand that side. Exactly right. You said survival of patients improves. The likelihood that the patient is transferred increases. And that there is no negative externality for patients that arrive to a reperfusion center directly. That is, patients that are going to the specialized hospital in the Southern Network do not see a worsening of their survival just because that specialized hospital in the Southern Network is taking more transfer exactly. patients from the general exactly. hospitals. There is no externality, as you said. And then you expand this empirical strategy to the rest of the country. Yes. So the thing, as I mentioned before, is IMSS has 23 different networks and they implemented this program staggeredly to each one of these networks. So the literature, the recent literature in econometrics has widely documented that if you do a two-way fixed effects estimation across all of these networks, you risk having negative weights. And the main reason is that if you compare a unit that was just treated a couple of periods before to a unit that is being treated now, Now, if the first unit is still having some dynamic effects of the intervention, then that will likely bias your results because you're not capturing it as a control, but you're capturing the effect of the long term or the dynamic effects afterwards that that unit is, is still experiencing. And the literature has come up with several ways to try and fix this issue. And I follow one by the Spandian League. So let me tell you a little bit about what I do to try and get um, sort of an estimating the wide effect among the whole country. So what I do is for each one of the networks that were treated, I'm going to take a data set for that specific network and only include observations that are viable controls for that network. And by viable controls, I mean that are networks that have not received intervention yet and will receive it at a later period in time after my analysis period has been has ended. And my analysis period will be six months before and six months after. So I do this procedure for network one, then for network two, I do the same. And of course, network one cannot be present here and so on and so forth. And by the end of the networks towards the last one, I ran out of viable controls and the last eight networks I don't have any controls for because there's nobody that will get intervention later and therefore there's nobody to compare them. Now, after doing this, what you do is that you stack all of these data sets together and you create a relative time dummy that tells you how many periods away you are from getting the intervention within each one of these data sets. So for the network one, if the program started in February 2015, then January 2015 will be minus one, February 2015 will be zero, and March 2015 will be one. If for another network, the program started in January 2016, for example, then January 2016 will be zero, one period before will be minus one, so on and so forth. And once you have this data set, what you do is that you run 
a difference in difference estimation, but instead of adding only hospital fixed effects, you have hospital slash expansion fixed effects or hospital slash data set fixed effects. Moreover, you include a relative time fixed effect as well. And then the coefficient that you're trying to estimate is going to be, again, the T post variable within each data set, which basically multiplies whether you're after the intervention started within that data set and if the treatment that you're using was treated, if the unit that you're using was treated. So I have also seen a number of papers in the last maybe five years that essentially have the message that the way that we were doing difference in differences was all wrong because there were lots of potential issues that were not being uh, taken into account and that now we need to either use different uh, empirical strategies or run different in difference in a smarter way. I have a couple of thoughts about what you just said. The first one is that you could, uh, it, it's all fine that you did this like stacker procedure, but presumably you also ran the standard difference in difference before these papers arrived. And when you did that, do you get similar estimates? That is, was there a big gain in uh, identification in your case from doing this more complicated yes, procedure? So Actually, what I was finding before were qualitatively similar results, but they were biased towards zero. So what the results that I was finding were a little bit smaller, or by a little bit, I mean like 30%, so it did matter. And I took a lot of time to try and understand what was going on. And at the end of the day, I don't even report this difference in different estimates in the paper because... If there is a way for us, a better way that has been discovered, as you were mentioning before, a new technology, then we should just use it to do it the best way we can, right? A better technology could be better in theory, but not in practice. So reporting them also helps us understand that other people need to use this new technology because it makes a dif- it made a difference in your case. The, the second thought that comes to mind is that a more basic technology of difference in differences is evaluating the validity of this estimation procedure by looking at the pre-trends that take place before a network in your case is treated. And a challenge in your case is that because you don't have that much data, the confidence intervals are quite large and it is not so clear to study whether there is like a very flat trend and then like a sharp, sudden discontinuity around the time that the the program is implemented. Uh, One thing that I was wondering is that you could have collapsed your time periods into quarters rather than months so that you have a little bit more of observations per time period. And perhaps that will have uh, given you like a clear idea in terms of the study of the pre-trends. Did you, did you try to do that? Yes. So I tried to do that. And what at the end of the day, what happened is that I would only have two pre-periods and then two post-periods because I don't have that longer time span. And there was this trade-off about, well, this looks great, of course, because I have so much more power and the estimates are more precise. But at the same time, I'm only showing two pre-periods and then two post-periods. So how convincing is that? And then you enter this trade-off about which would you rather present. And but what I do actually do, which I think is helpful and sort of helps convince the reader that this strategy is okay, is that I run a placebo exercise where I take the implementation date for each and every network and shift it 12 months before. And after shifting that implementation date 12 months before, I redo the whole procedure and see whether I can find any significant effects there. And what I see is that there's absolutely no effect either on survival for general hospital arrivals, no effect for transfers. There's also no reduction in transfer times. And lastly, there's also no externality for reperfusion centers. So I find that the results are absolutely null. 
And while you are absolutely right that my estimates are relying on pulling all of the information I have into getting one significant number, when you do that exercise for the placebo test, you see that nothing, you see that nothing is going on, which really gives support to the idea that there are no um, different trends and that the estimation is properly run. Okay, so so far we have seen that only good things happen when Código Infarto is implemented in Mexico. This is probably good enough for them. But for from a research perspective, I agree with you that we are uh, differentially interested in whether the effect that we find is the result of better communication as opposed to better capabilities uh, in dealing with these heart attack patients by the general hospitals. So a lot of the added value in the paper is, I think, trying to disentangle these two effects because unfortunately, from an econometric perspective, the Mexican doctors implemented Código Infarto as a bundle rather than only the WhatsApp, WhatsApp chats without the training uh, and better capabilities. So what is your strategy to disentangle between these two potential effects? Great question. And you are absolutely right. I think that the main contribution of the paper is that if we are able to disentangle these two policies and actually try and estimate how much of the effect is explained through these three WhatsApp intervention, then that could be replicated in many other contexts. And that's sort of what I want to highlight. So the way I'm going to try and do this is develop a model that will capture a physician's decision of whether to transfer a patient or not. And the model will basically ask, well, if you're a physician and you're seeing a patient that's as severe as you're seeing him, would you rather transfer him or not? And the trade-off is going to be the following. So if you transfer that patient, then potentially that patient will make it to a more capable center, of course, a more capable center, and that more capable center will be able to treat that person better. However, if I transfer that patient, since transfers are going to take such a long time, then that patient's severity will worsen. And since that patient's health condition will be worse, you'll have a more capable physician trying to save a worse patient. Now, on top of that, which return makes that transfer viable to me? Because of course, getting an ambulance and sending the patient all the way there and so on, it's not going to be free, right? So in some sense, I'm going to assume that there's a cost in terms of health by how much the health of the patient is affected by this transfer. And on the other hand, I'm going to assume that there's a cost in terms of economic terms of how much it's going to cost me to transfer a patient. So what a doctor will analyze is, well, I would get this return from transfer accounting for the fact that the patient will become more complicated. And is that worth it or not? And let me give you a couple of examples to make this clear. So if the patient is extremely healthy and has the mildest heart attack you've ever heard about, then that patient will live everywhere. So let's say that he has a 0.99 chance of living in that general hospital, but a 0.999 chance of living in a reperfusion center. Then probably it's not worth it to that for that transfer to happen because that patient doesn't require it. So it's not worth it to spend that much money on that. However, on the other hand, if the patient is really, really sick and the person is going to die anyway, then it's also not worth it for you to transfer because the patient will just not make it through the transfer and make it in time for the reperfusion center to treat them. Lastly, if you're in the middle, then you have a lot to gain from transfers because you can withstand the transfer. And at the same time, getting you to a, to a more specialized center will really help. So that's sort of the pattern that the model is describing. And that's what we observe in the data as well. One thing here, therefore, is that in reducing the communication cost is uh, having two effects. The first one is that the patients that are going to be transferred anyway will make it to the specialized hospital faster and therefore they are more likely to survive. That's effect number one. The second 
if I understood it well, is that now it becomes viable for some patients that were really, really bad uh, to suddenly make the trip from the general hospital to the specialized hospital. That's a negative selection effect. That is a positive direct effect, if you want, and a negative indirect effect that comes from the negative selection of the patients that are transferred. You're exactly right. So the main reason why we need a model to try and disentangle these two components and cannot do it in a reduced form sense, like we were doing on the first part of the paper, is that the selection of who gets transferred is being affected. So let me deviate one minute back to the Garicano model. What we're seeing here is that the lower tier hospitals are becoming much more capable, but at the same time, the communication cost is becoming cheaper. So on the one hand, the fact that lower tier members are more capable will reduce the transfers that you want to make because you're now able to treat more patients at home. However, since the communication cost is being reduced, you want to transfer more patients and you're able to transfer more patients who are more complicated. And these two components will interact. And through the model, we're going to be able to see this. And precisely what we see after estimating the model is that people who are more severe are the ones who are being transferred more. Whereas people that were relatively healthier are the ones that are being transferred less. So therefore, you see that both components of the model are, of the program are playing a role in the sense because on the one hand, you want to stop transferring some patients. And on the other hand, you want to transfer more of the more complicated patients, which can make it now. So I have a, a couple of thoughts with respect to this. You have like this, this model and this like a um, structural estimation. I don't really understand these things very well, but... If I think back about the reduced form uh, findings, they uh, were showing that the program both increased survival, which could be the result of better communication or better capabilities of the general hospitals, but also increased transfers. Now, the second part is the one that you are saying has to be, uh, is the one that is consistent with a decreasing communication and given that the transfer of negatively selected patients should predict a worsening of outcomes for patients that are transferred, the fact that you observe an improvement of outcomes must mean that the, there is a direct effect of better communication that more than always the negative selection. Is that the right way to understand it? Just looking back at the, at the reduced form effects? Yes. So when you think about the reduced form effects, they take us a long way to understanding what was going on, but they don't allow us to estimate the contribution of each component. So you're absolutely right that there is really solid evidence that the ICT component is playing a significant role in this channel, because based on the Gary Cano model, there should be less transfers based on the improved capabilities and more transfers based on the communication component. So the fact that you are seeing more transfers in the data highlights that the communication component is over, over contributing relative to this um, capabilities component, at least in the transfer selection, because it's leading for a doubling of transfers of these patients. Secondly, we are seeing direct evidence that the transfer time from general hospitals to reperfusion centers is reduced 33%. And therefore, we can conclude that the ICT is playing a role. We just don't know how much, which is why we need the model to estimate it. So one thing that, that came to mind, both in terms of the description of the production process that you have in the paper, and also now, now that we are talking so much about the Garicano model, is that in both cases, the improvement of capabilities at the entry-level worker, in your case, the general hospital, improves the ability of dealing with the problem or the patient. If the problem is not transferred, 
but does not have an effect in the likelihood that the problem is solved, the problem survives, if the problem is transferred. That is, it is critical, in my opinion, throughout the, your description of the production process in Mexico, that if we do all these things that you said, getting a better room, training the staff in the hospitals and so on, and say we apply the needle faster to a patient that is anyway going to end up in the specialized hospital, the fact that we treated that patient better in the general hospital, in your model, does not affect whether uh, he survives when he's transferred. And I was thinking that this is not an obvious assumption, at least to me, because it will seem to me that if you apply the needle within five minutes of the heart attack rather than 35 minutes for a patient that is eventually transferred, where that patient is going to arrive in much better condition to the specialized hospital, and therefore improving capabilities in the general hospital is also going to improve the likelihood of survival of patients that are anyway transferred. So it is there's an, an element of complementarity there, at least intuitively to me, that I, I think is not, uh, you know, is potential at least. Yes, yes, you are absolutely right. And it might perfectly be the case that the fact that they're treating them with urinalytic therapy or with a needle sooner sort of affects their probability of survival after transfer. And in some sense, those components could interact. However, the main problem with what is what happens here is that once or why I think this shouldn't play a large role is that the main damage that a heart attack, uh, that a heart endures is during the first few moments. So when you make the decision of either let's run and get this person as soon as we can to the PCI room. Or let's just go and pray that fibrinolytic therapy works. Because conditional and fibrinolytic therapy working, the likelihood of that person dying is really, really small. And the whole idea is to try and get that person in time and get it treated. So if that's if that treatment is successful, it's very likely that the person won't even need to be like to be transferred or anything. However, if you decide to transfer that patient immediately, you really need to run and make sure that that person makes it there. Uh, but you are absolutely right that I have no evidence or way to saying like, this is not happening and this is for sure not going on in the model. It's just based on the description that I've heard. And the model is built with based on various conversations that I had with the program creator and how she thinks that these mechanisms are playing a role. But you are absolutely right. That may be happening. In your conversations with them, again, I, I don't know anything about medicine. So maybe what I'm saying is absurd for, for, for doctors, but in your conversations with them, do you detect any hint that the improvement of capabilities in the general hospital might have improved the diagnosis of who is going to survive when receiving the needle as opposed to really needing the balloon? Because, you know, the allocation of patients to treatments, that's also a capability. And that's something that potentially could be yes. improved by investing in that way in the general hospitals. You're right. Both before and after intervention, what, what used to happen is that physicians at general hospitals need to ask for permission from the reperfusion centers to transfer a patient and the reperfusion center physicians need to authorize that transfer. So the reason why selection might be being affected is because reperfusion center physicians are sort of considering the information about how long the patient will take to make it there and what the chances of survival are. It's not that the physicians at the general hospital are having a different approach to how they transfer patients. And let me add one more thing to this description of the model. So something that I haven't described is that to adjust the model, 
I do a machine learning algorithm based on data before the intervention started anywhere in the country. So I use all their previous hospitalizations, age, sex, and every demographic that I have into this fancy machine learning algorithm that basically interacts everything with another thing and so on and so forth to try and get the best prediction of mortality that we can. And I use that mortality as a severity measure. I only trained the model before the intervention started so that I can actually use the book, the period before, to sort of see what is going on with, with the model's implications. And in order to test the model and make sure that the model is actually capturing reality, what I do is that I plot sort of the distribution of severity on the x-axis and on the y-axis, how likely a person is to be transferred. And I use the predicted values for before the intervention started and after. So the severity prediction is being used by the same model. However, what I find is that transfers for the least severe patients who were being transferred before are going down. And transfers for the more severe patients, based again on the model that has nothing to do with colibri are going up. And sort of that highlights that while I agree with you that the model might be omitting some important channels, at least as a first degree uh, comparative static, it is fairly well replicating what the coding infarto program did, even without making any assumptions in terms of severity. So what are the findings in terms of that, that this model gives you in terms of the relative uh, contribution of each of these two legs of the program to the overall effects that you estimated in the reduced form. Right. So after estimating the model, what I find, so right, you have this model, now you can actually get to use it to answer the question. Would have happened if only WhatsApp was introduced, right? So when, when I do that, what I find is that 68% of the effect would have been acquired by only including the WhatsApp component. And on top of that, I find that while transfers almost doubled, according to the data, if only WhatsApp was introduced without the capabilities component, transfers would have almost gone up five times. And the reason of this is, again, the Garicano model, if the lower tier capabilities would not have been improved, then you wanted to transfer a substantially higher amount of patients. On the other hand, what I find is that the capabilities this component alone would have gotten a 65% of the effect. So the capabilities component still played a significant role into all of this story. And lastly, because 65 plus 68 is way over 100, the components are highlighting some sense of sustainability between them. And the reason why this is going on is, well, if you have access to a better transfer and a faster service over there, or you get a better treatment here, and you're only going to use one or the other, then there's going to be some degree of substitution between them because you cannot use both at the same time. A robust finding from the empirical literature in organizational economics is that management practices are strategic complements. That is, the benefits of introducing one of them are higher when the other one is introduced. So I was really surprised uh, to find that here you, you see that the two practices are substitutes in that both of them independently could have achieved a large fraction of the overall like joint effects. I was wondering why you think, what the reason you think is for this discrepancy, other than the patients are treated here or there, you know, why is it that this context lends itself, you know, to, to the sustainability rather than the complementarity that we find in other settings? So I think that the main reason behind this is that you're going to get treatment either at a hospital or the other. And just by that definition, you cannot exploit both at the same time. Now, Having said that, some mechanism that the model is not equipped to answer is, well, if after getting the training, the training from Código Infarto in your own general hospital, 
are physicians more willing to interact with the others and engage with this WhatsApp group or not, which might be going on, that's something that I am not equipped to answer. And from the model standpoint as it is today, uh, the infrastructure thing is you can improve the capabilities from one hospital and that will lead you to provide better treatment, but you can only provide that better treatment for the people who stay. You cannot do that for the people who are going to leave it. Thank you, Ari, for coming to the program. Thank you very much for having me. My guest today has been Ari Bronsoder. My name is Jordi Blanes Ibidal, and this is The Visible Hand Podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed, Interactory Music and Logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.